Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be talking about Genesis 22. Now, Genesis 22 is a story that's familiar to most Christians. And uh, if they don't know the, the exact reference to chapter 22, all you have to do is give them some prompts. You say, well, what about that time when God tested Abraham? And they'll say, oh, you mean, you know, when he brought his only son, Isaac, put him to the mountain. They might know the name of the mountain, Mount Moriah. And uh, he said to sacrifice his son. And so Abraham's in the process of uh, lifting the knife where he stopped midair by an angel of the Lord. And then a ram is substituted instead. Most people understand that. And a lot of people take that as a uh, uh, reference to Christ, the, the sacrificial lamb, the son of God. And so there's, there's new, new Testament connotations with this story that make it a fairly popular story. But a lot of people, they just skip over the very open theistic elements within the story. You know, most people have cognitive dissonance when reading text. They'll, they'll come to the text with their own preconceived notions. And when they come to a text that doesn't quite agree with those notions, they'll just kind of bump over it. And they'll just keep on reading without, without uh, mentally preparing, mentally assimilating those views into their theology. They, they won't let those texts inform their theology. And Genesis 22 is interesting in the fact that it creates a lot of cognitive dissonance, sometimes so much so that scholars, that this is their breaking point when they come across Genesis 22. And I got pulled up this interesting guy, Joel S. Kaminsky, and he has a book called Jews, Christians, and the Theology of the Hebrew Scriptures, in which he talks about his dealings with Genesis 22 when he started reading it, and he noticed that it conflicted with a lot of ideas he'd like to impose on the text. And I'm going to kind of scroll down to this paragraph here, and we'll start here. He says, I spoke earlier of cultivating generosity towards the text. If we are indeed to befriend it, generosity towards the Old Testament must mean this at least, accepting the text on its own terms, literally working seriously with the language it offers us. The advantage of this present reading is that it is directed by the words of the passage rather than an extraneous idea, such as the immorality of child sacrifice, the omniscience of God, however valid that idea might be in another interpretive situation. So what he's saying here is something I've said often on this program, that you can't take later theological ideas and then import them onto these these prior texts that, that don't have anything about them in the context. They're written from a different perspective, and there's no negative theology in mind of the author here. And so what he's saying here is this text isn't about the immorality of child sacrifice. That's there's, The text doesn't talk about it. There's nothing in there to indicate that this is a criticism of child sacrifice per se. There's nothing in here that says that God is omniscient and knows all things in the future. That wasn't in the author's mind. You don't find that in the context. You need to treat the text with integrity. And so another good thing that he does, I'm going to keep reading this next paragraph because it actually sets us up to where we are in the overall story of Genesis. And this is important because Genesis 22 is in context. It's in context of Abraham's dealings with God and in the overall context of God's dealings with mankind. As this next paragraph points out and brings us up, catches us up to where we are in the story. He writes, This reading also coheres with the larger narrative context, to which the very first words of the chapter points us. After these things, God tested Abraham. After what things? Where are we in the history of salvation? At this point, all of God's eggs are in Abraham's basket, almost literally. 
Recall that after the Tower of Babel, God gave up on working a blessing directly upon all humankind and adopted a new strategy, channeling the blessing through Abraham's line. Our story takes account of that new divine strategy, and all the nations of the earth will find blessing through your seed because you have heeded my voice. God, having been badly and repeatedly burned by human sin throughout the first chapters of Genesis, yet still passionately desirous of working blessing in the world, now consents to become totally vulnerable on the point of this one man's faithfulness. That's an important sentence, so I'm going to read it again. God, having been badly and repeatedly burned by human sin throughout the first chapters of Genesis, yet still passionately desirous of working blessings in the world, now consents to become totally vulnerable on the point of this one man's faithfulness. But the narrative has just cast a shadow of doubt over Abraham's total faith in God. Remember those two episodes in which Abraham has Sarah pass herself off as his sister. In Egypt and again in Canaan, he lets his beautiful wife go into the king's harem rather than trusting God to protect them on their sojourn. After these things, God tested Abraham. After all of that, we can begin to understand why God must know for sure whether the single human thread upon which the blessings hang will hold firm. And so what Kaminsky does is he puts all of this Genesis narrative into context. Where are we in the overall story? After what events are these things happening? And why is this scene in the Bible? Where does it fit in the overall plot? Those are important things to consider. So we set the stage of the plot. I'm going to turn to a new book here, and this is called Insights from Filmmaking for Analyzing Biblical Narrative. And this is by Yamensky. I think that's how you say his name. But what he focuses on is understanding biblical stories in the context of film. How are film plots developed? How is storytelling? How does it work? And uh, creating the story world. And framing is one thing that I'd like to go over because I think this is very relevant to Genesis 22. He actually talks about Genesis 22 in this book and how it doesn't work with omniscience, but he misses the important crucial aspect of, of the framing and what the framing is doing in Genesis 22. So I'd like to take his points about framing and then apply them to Genesis 22. And I don't know, maybe if he's watching this, he wants to kind of revise his book a little bit to, to understand the camera lens in Genesis 22. And I'm going to just read this quote about framing so the audience understands what it is. And if you recall back to our previous episode about the plot, and we had that short story about the censor, and we turned to that interesting paragraph in which the author describes the, the censor finding all sorts of people who have devious plots against the state. And we understand, although it's not explicit in the paragraph, we understand that this paragraph is written from his perspective with certain key words that clue us in that he is losing touch with reality. So although the paragraph says one thing, the audience can see that this paragraph is framed from his perspective and is a detachment from reality. And so that's framing, framing whose perspective is the story being written from. And starting in this book, the point of view of a given shot is largely determined by the positioning of the movie camera lens that is taking the shot. In 1982, Hebrew scholar Adel Berlin proffered the analogy of a movie camera lens as a way of understanding the concept of point of view. In any film, the story is filtered through the perspective of the camera eye. Sometimes the camera gives long shots, sometimes close-ups. 
and it constantly shifts perspective, showing the action from different angles. The viewer's perspective is both expanded and controlled by the camera. He can see the action from many directions of perspectives, but can see only what the camera shows him. The biblical narrative narrates like a film. The narrator is the camera eye, and we see the story through what he presents. The biblical narrator is omniscient in that everything is at his disposal, but he selects carefully what he will include and what he will omit. He can survey the scene from a distance or zoom in for a detailed look at a small part of it. He can follow one character throughout or hop from vantage point from one to another. So when we're looking at narratives in the Bible, we always have to wonder from whose perspective are we seeing these events and what's the narrator trying to do with that? Why, why this particular perspective rather than another? You know, in Genesis 1, we have almost a third-party view of actions happening without any access to inner thoughts of any of the actors until you get to the creation of man. In, in what way is the author enhancing the story by using that third-party perspective in the meantime until the man? Maybe, maybe the point is that the man is a special thing that requires this additional thought. There, there we get to see God's special decision to make man because of man's special place. Maybe that's the reason for framing that perspective in that way. Genesis 22 is uh, very interesting because it's framed from God's perspective. We don't get very much into Abraham's inner thought. And because we don't get perspective into what Abraham is thinking, is it allows a lot of diversity of interpretation. Was he debating things? Was he questioning whether God would actually make him go through with the sacrifice? Was he just uh, stoically going along with these commands and not thinking about it? Was there internal conflict? And so let's kind of read this and understand why this perspective is the way it is and, and throw out some theories of why this perspective uh, this particular perspective was chosen. It says, Genesis 22.1, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And so this is your typical call and response that you have throughout the Bible. God calls on a prophet, they say, Here I am. And so this is probably more of a cultural thing than a call back to an earlier event or a call back to a future event. And those future events are probably not a call back to this. It's probably just a normal thing in Israelite culture this call and response as a prophet of God. He says, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains, which I shall tell you. This is interesting. So we get a lot of information about Abraham and his relationship to his son in this verse. But it's framed not from a third-party narrator perspective. It doesn't say Abraham really loved his son who was his only son. It's not framed from Abraham's perspective. Why are you asking me to sacrifice my only son whom I love? Instead, it's framed from Yahweh, God's perspective. He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offering him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. So what advantages do we have from each of the narratives? From the narrative where Abraham is giving that information. If he's, he's, if he's the one talking about his only son whom we love, we could sympathize with him. We could understand what he's thinking. But not divulging it from his perspective allows us to speculate on what his actual thoughts are. And presenting this instead from God's perspective tells us something that 
telling it from his perspective does not tell us. Can you guess what that is? It tells us tells us that God understands what he's asking Abraham to do. This is not, oh, take take one of your 25 sons and uh, sacrifice him to me. And you don't much care about that son because you've got 25 sons and, you know, diminishing returns. The more you have of something, the less you care about something. No, instead it's, I'm God. I understand that you really, really value your son. This is your only son and you love him. So I understand what I'm telling you to do. I understand the emotional toll that I am inflicting on you. So you take this son and I know what I'm doing. That's not a mistake on my part. I'm fully aware of the impact on your life that this is going to have. And you're not going to get that perspective, that that understanding if it's a third-party narrator telling these events. And Abraham really loved his son. Well, no, that doesn't tell us that God understands. It doesn't tell us that God has internalized that information. And God is using that information as part of the test because that makes the test that much more of a real test. It gives that extra weight to the test that this is a real emotional burden to Abraham. And it does so without invoking Abraham's own thoughts. It's a second party telling us Abraham's thoughts that doesn't involve Abraham himself thinking those thoughts. That's what it does for us. It tells us that God knows what he's asking Abraham to do. God is fully informed of this test. Moving on, we don't see any internal feedback from Abraham. It just starts, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. So it doesn't tell us too much about his internal thinking. It doesn't tell us what's going on in his head, if he's uh, sad, if he's devastated, if he's mad, if he's questioning if this is just a test and God won't make him go through with it. We're left to wonder and we're left to speculate. And a lot of people do speculate. A lot of commentary on this speculates. And maybe, perhaps, I'm going to posit that that's the point. That's the point. Because if Genesis 22 explained to us Abraham's internal thoughts, maybe it might lose what it's actually trying to communicate to the listener, that Abraham is acting, and it doesn't matter what his internal thoughts are, just that he's obeying Yahweh. If they presented him and presented his thought process and presented how he's dealing emotionally with this issue, it might make it less personal for us when we go through the same experience, because maybe we react in anger, maybe we react in wonder, Maybe we react in sadness. And if it doesn't line up to what the text says Abraham felt, maybe we might say, this is a different situation. It doesn't apply to us. We don't have to follow what God says. And so taking his perspective out of this and framing this as a test of Yahweh against Abraham to see what he would do, taking his personal perspectives out of this, what it does is it creates a blank slate that any one of us can fill in with our own person. It doesn't matter what we think as individuals. We still follow through with what God says. So that's that's why I think that we don't get very much insight into Abraham because Abraham is supposed to be a proxy us. We are Abraham in this story. We need to substitute our own emotions, how we would react, and supplement this story with our emotions in Abraham's stead. 
and you don't get that. You, you lose that element if you, you supply Abraham his own emotions. And it says, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So it's a three-day journey, we understand. This is a very condensed narrative. That we, we need to keep that in mind, that the text is very specific, focused, selective. It's not like a novel where you got a lot of time to extrapolate on all things and, and you, you just describe everything. So the text is very deliberate. The words, the phrases, the sentences are specifically chosen to add to the overall point of this narrative. And then Abraham said to the young man, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So what's he doing here? And it's left for, to us to wonder because we do not have insight into what he's thinking. We only see what he's saying. Does he think that God's going to spare his son and they're going to come back down off the mountain with his son? Is he lying to these young men as not to make them afraid for his Abraham's son? Is What's he doing? Is he deceiving them? Is he saying this in a general sense where we'll just go and we'll come back and he doesn't quite mean it in all the technical sense? We don't know. The text doesn't supply context for that. Yeah, I know. I know the New Testament comments on this, but the text in Genesis 22 does not supply any of those details. We're left wondering. We, we don't know as readers of this story. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son and he took in his hand the fire and knife and so they both of them went together and Isaac said to his father Abraham my father and he said here I am recall this this is just the same phrases that we just saw in Genesis 1 where God said to Abraham Abraham and he said here I am and we got down here Isaac talks to his father my father and he said here I am and so this is probably a callback to verse 1. It's fresh in our memory. It's the same type of phrasing. It's a callback. It's a call and response. Here I am, my son, he said. Behold, the fire and wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? This is Isaac talking. He says, I don't see any lamb. What are we going to sacrifice? And Abraham said, this is very interesting. It's It's got double meaning. It's 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 uh, kind of uh double entendre. I don't know if I'm using that right. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. My son. A burnt offering, my son. Is he calling his son the burnt offering? Maybe. Maybe he's saying you are the burnt offering, but he's saying it in such a way that it could be interpreted that there's a different sacrifice that's going to come. There, there's, there's so many things going on in this phrase and we still don't know what Abraham's thinking is he thinking there might be reprieve from this test is he thinking that you are the burnt offering my son I don't want to destroy you emotionally we we just get a third party perspective view of people talking when they came to that place of which God had told them Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son, but the angel of the Lord, you know, the Lord, Yahweh, caps, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. So the third time we see this in the story, call and response, call and response. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. 
And this, this is a callback to, of course, the start of the chapter where Isaac is also called Abraham's only son. And this is despite him having another son in Ishmael, Isaac, Ishmael. He, he sent Ishmael away previously. And so Isaac is the only son that he actually has. He's expelled his other son. It's his last son. It's a repeated phrase. And it's used for a specific reason to conjure emotions in the audience. They understand that all his hopes and dreams are on this one child. It's his only son. And it keeps saying that it's the son whom he loves. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So the chapter starts off as being a test of Yahweh. Yahweh is testing Abraham to see if he's going to be faithful or not. This test is concluded in Genesis 22:12, in which he learns the information that he's trying to test to find. The, the, it's pretty obvious what this test is designed to do. It's a test to gather information. I'm trying to call it some sort of other test, a test for Abraham's sake, or it, it's not true to the text. It's not dealing with what actually happened and what God sees as the point of the text, what the text describes God gaining from this text. So you, you can't just come in and say this test was for something else and just make up something. Of course, that is not being true to the narrative, the direct narrative, which describes what the test was and what it was for. And God says, now I know. And now I know. He, he's gained information. And this is the key sticking point that has uh, converted individuals to open theism, actually, when they, they understand that this is a test to gain knowledge. These ancient writers in Genesis didn't have this idea of future omniscience of all things. It just wasn't part of their worldview. They didn't incorporate it into their stories and they incorporated God learning information. It wasn't, they, they weren't like uh, some hardcore open theist saying, God doesn't know the future. They don't care about those things. They don't care about the total extent of God's knowledge. If he knows if there's a rock on Pluto that shifts a little bit to the left or the right, they don't care about that. They care about God's present knowledge of all events, watching mankind, enforcing justice, and and testing people, testing to know. God tests people throughout the Bible. This is their common thought process. They don't, they don't care about uh, what the extent of God's uh, metaphysical character, knowledge, simplicity. It's just not a facet of the text. It's just not something they care about. So God learns. God learns in this text from the test that he provides. And do we, we, could, we could extrapolate and say, well, maybe a lot of these things that God knows about hearts, he learns through testing. Like when, God, when the Bible says that God knows the hearts, and then we look to different verses that say that God tests to know the heart. And we could say, well, it looks like the common understanding was God tests hearts in order to know those hearts. Not that he looks inside the heart like it's a mechanical thing, but, you know, that's extrapolation on the text. It's, it's not a key sticking point in Israelite theology. They, they don't care about this enough to describe it in detail. And the only reason, of course, open theists care about these details and enough to point against negative theology is because negative theology champions these, these crazy ideas that aren't they're not very prominent in the Bible. Negative theology champions them to the exclusion of the biblical text. It's, it's important to point out that these, that's not what the writers of the Bible 
They didn't think like that. They didn't care about those types of things. Instead, they were in the Genesis worldview. They were in this ancient Near Eastern understanding of how the divine realm worked. And it wasn't negative theology. It wasn't these later additions to theology that there, there's no place. There's no place for them in the Bible. So then we have this reversal in 13. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Was this what Abraham was expecting when he said the Lord will provide? Or was he expecting his son? He said they will provide a burnt offering, my son. Was he expecting his son to be the burnt offering? And then coincidentally, his, his phrase came true in a second sense that he wasn't expecting. Was he accidentally right? We don't know. And that's, that's, that's one of the, the mysteries of the text. That's one of the fascinating things about how this is written. The, these, these things, they weave together in such a way as, you know, there's double meanings in these various texts. There, there's double ways to take them. And there's a subversion of expectations from ourselves, from the writer, from individuals in the story. It, it, it's, it's a very dynamic text in a short, what, 15 type of verses. Verse 14, so Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And here we're going to get the results of this test. God tests to know. He uses this information and makes a determination. God is using this test for something. There's a reason for this test. And he says, by myself, I have sworn because you can't swear on anything greater than God. And so he's swearing on himself. And this is what this means in Hebrews, where it says that Yahweh swore on himself because there's none greater. They're referring to this. He's saying, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. Notice the repetition of being the only son. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand of that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall the entire all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice so watch, watch this watch this he, he blesses him he says because you passed the test i will do this he says do this test he says now i know he says now i'm going to use this information and and respond to this test God responds in this. It's not like a mutable God outside of time, space. Again, that's not in their worldview. That's not in their their range of conceptual concepts when writing the Bible is uh, absolute immutability metaphysics. It's, it's not there. So Abraham returned, who was young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. That's the story. That's the story. It's, it's all about a test, a test of Abraham. We're not given insight into Abraham, in, into his worldview, what he's thinking, his emotions. We're not because we are the Abrahams in the story. We need to supply this blank slate with however we would emotionally, mentally respond in that situation. And that's what I think a lot of the point of this text is. The test is to show that you're faithful to Yahweh, despite despite what you're thinking internally, that you follow through with, with what he tells to do you in spite of your internal feelings. It doesn't matter what your internal feelings are. You just perform, and then he blesses. 
there, there, there is some sort of reciprocal action. There's a benefit, a blessing of the people. And of course, this enforces the overall narrative, the over, overall Abrahamic covenant, and uh, the special place of Israel as the priest's nation to lead all the nations of earth because Israel wasn't just focused on Israel. It wasn't like in the time of Jesus when they thought, oh, all the Gentiles are scum and they're, they're, they're nothing. The, the entire point of Israel being a special priest nation was to eventually evangelize the rest of the world. And as our previous author pointed out, that doesn't always happen. It didn't, it didn't happen within the biblical narrative. God is trying different things with different people at different points of time and seeing what will stick. If you have any questions or comments on today's podcast, send that to godisopenquestions at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.